Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Equinor. How low can we make carbon emissions go? Equinor's answer is one kilometre below the seabed. We're planning to capture CO2 emissions and safely store them under the sea. Visit equinor.co.uk. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com today's episode is presented by lloyd's banking group everyone deserves a safe place to call home that's why lloyd's banking group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. It's a good day to remember a golden rule. Ignore the lobby if you want to understand what's important, said Dominic Cummings on Twitter in September 2021. Otherwise, he warned his followers you are doomed to follow the ephemeral, emotional waves of the lobby's constant hysteria. So, I could be wrong, but I don't think Boris Johnson's former top advisor thinks very highly of the journalists who inhabit Westminster. Which means, I'm afraid, that he might not think much of me. My name is Alva Ray, and I inhabit Westminster for a living. First as the New Statesman's political correspondent, and now as your new host of the Westminster Insider podcast. My first job out of university was as a reporter for the Evening Standard Diary. The then editor, some guy called George Osborne, wanted the diary column in his newspaper to be full of political gossip. I find myself suddenly trying to break into this strange world. I'd skulk around the Red Lion pub, I'd linger weirdly after think tank events, collecting MPs' numbers like they were rare treasure or something. But what I wanted most was a lobby pass. I wanted to be in this mad world of secret briefings and gossip, of taking politicians for coffees and lunches, earning their trust, hearing what they really thought. And then I wanted to go back and tell readers, or listeners like you, what was really going on. I wanted to be in the lobby. Sorry, Dom. For my first episode with you, I wanted to start here, in the lobby itself. This is the story of how British politics really works day in, day out, But it's a story journalists don't often tell because, well, we're in it. And, you know, for all that Dominic Cummings likes to ruffle feathers, he isn't the only person with questions about the way we do things in this deeply weird world of Westminster journalism. I want to take you by the hand, if it's not too forward, into the Palace of Westminster. We're going across a courtyard, through some cloisters, into a stairwell, up what feels like the oldest lift in London, 
high up above the House of Commons, tucked under Big Ben, along a pokey corridor of faded offices to the epicentre of British democracy. the bongs were standing overlooking the clock tower and so-called Big Ben in a glorious room where there are three colleagues hard at work who we're disturbing. This was the throbbing heart of the, of the parliamentary lobby system. So I think, Andrew, that some people would be surprised by how shabby the press gallery is in a way. Nothing's changed since I first came here in 1984. It's exactly the same. Faded, shabby, bashed and a kind of particularly noxious brown Windsor soup carpet with kind of stains all over it. I was talking to one colleague and I said, nothing's changed, nothing's changed. And they said, oh yes it has, oh yes it has. I said, tell me what's changed when I was first here. And he said, more mice. That's Andrew Marr, of course, veteran political journalist with more than two decades covering politics for the BBC under his belt. This is room two, this is where I began. And the perfect person to join for a walk along the Burma Road. And we're now in what is called the Burma Road, which I think is an ironic Second World War nickname for the main corridor in which... The real Burma Road was built by tens of thousands of labourers in the run-up to World War II, a crucial 700-mile supply route for China as it tried to resist the Japanese invasion. Our Burma Road in Westminster is a narrow, mice-infested corridor where the politics teams from the different national and regional papers, the political magazines and now political websites have their parliamentary offices. I would imagine this wasn't the ladies back in the day. I think this was actually the independent newspaper office (laughs) where I spent, spent many happy years. These journalists work in here from morning till night, with a decent break for lunch, of course covering British politics from right inside the House of Commons. And you can kind of see what they were going for with the nickname. Burma Road is the route that takes the news and the gossip and the scandal of Westminster out into the world. The vital supplies. Did you lie at the dispatch box, Prime Minister? Vomit, drunken altercations. Pizzas and Prosecco and a karaoke machine. This is the place where political investigations unfold, illicit briefings are held, where occasionally you hear a laugh or a gasp from down the corridor as another politics team lands the scoop of the century. Too hot in summer, too cold in winter, with paper-thin windows designed to ensure you get a headache every time there are noisy protesters down below on Parliament Square. This pokey wee corridor is quite simply the best place in the world to be if you love British politics. And it's been that way for a very long time. It was very strange, Alan, when I first came back here, beginning of this year, after quite a long gap. It was kind of full of ghosts. I mean, I can really, I can remember the voices and the look and the, 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 the manner of walking of colleagues who are now long dead. Andrew Marr first joined the lobby in 1984, a fresh-faced parliamentary correspondent with the Scotsman newspaper. My first really big story was the Westland crisis and then the series of crises which eventually ended up in the fall of Margaret Thatcher. So there'd be an awful lot of moments when you were waiting for the latest sort of rebellious cabinet minister would appear at the top of the lifts in the press gallery area. I can remember Heseltine here, Ken Clark here, Chris Patton here, all those characters in the the final days of the Thatcher years. And I remember going down to the bottom of the lift shaft and Mm -hmm. the doors opening and there, completely by herself, 
in an empty corridor was Margaret Thatcher. Really? And she said to me, hello, dear. I think I've got a bit lost. <laughs> and she had. The bottom of this lift chair. There's an amazing sense of history on the Burma Road, full of portraits and cartoons of politicians and journalists from years and decades gone by. Andrew, I have to stop you because <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> we're standing in front of a great black and white photo of Andrew with a copy of the Daily Express under your arm That's on right. the phone in this corridor. An early version of a mobile phone, yeah, that was a long time ago. Back in the Victorian era, the Speaker banned members of the public from entering the hallway outside the House of Commons chamber. Instead, the members' lobby was just for MPs and a select few reporters on a secret list. These special journalists with access to the lobby, so special in fact that at one point there was supposedly only one of them, became known as just the lobby, a secret group with a style of journalism all of their own. These journalists are not here just to faithfully report what's said in debates and speeches in the House of Commons. That's just a tiny fraction of the job. What's important is finding out what's being said behind closed doors. But the lobby's special access arrangements didn't end there. During the general strike of 1926, the Cabinet started holding daily briefings with selected journalists on an unattributable basis. And within a few years, a system of secret government briefings of a select few journalists was in place. When Andrew Marr joined the lobby decades later... These briefings were still secret. It was a completely secretive organisation then. People don't understand. Uh, if you were a member of the lobby, you had a slightly different past than those of us like when I came in who didn't have a past like that. And you weren't allowed to discuss what happened in the lobby meeting. You never talked about who was there. You pretended it never happened. Uh, when I joined the Independent, a new paper then, we felt that this was giving the Prime Minister, then Margaret Thatcher, a grotesquely unfair advantage because her press spokesman could say things, often really damaging, sometimes libelous things, in complete secrecy, and it would be reported on the front page of every single newspaper the next day. And so we said we weren't going to join the lobby. We were going to join the system. The Guardian and the Scotsman joined the boycott, breaking the system by getting leaks from the secret lobby briefings and attributing them directly to Bernard Ingham, Thatcher's press secretary. He became very, very aerated, very angry between lots of people, and there were furious arguments up and down the Burma Road, people shouting at each other. And eventually, there were so many leaks coming out of the lobby every single day that the Prime Minister's press spokesman could no longer work in that way. And I think that was a really important battle to win. When John Major took office, the lobby secrecy that had been so crucial to Thatcher's reign came to an end. Then, in the new Labour years, Alistair Campbell opened it up further. Wait a minute, let me answer the question. I'll answer it in my way, not your way. Accused of spin and intimidation, he let his briefings be attributed to not just Downing Street sources, but the Prime Minister's official spokesman. He even let a lobby briefing be televised for the first time, although only as a one-off. Your own Home Office Minister on television yesterday says the Tories are playing the race card. Does the Prime Minister side with those comments or does he disagree with them? The Prime Minister, as I said, right at the outset would never, ever allow the Labour Party to play the race card. Gradually, the status of the lobby as a secret, exclusive club within the press gallery has disappeared, and briefings are open to pretty much every journalist who has a parliamentary pass. But the controversy around lobby journalism hasn't gone away. 
Even if the formal lobby briefings have, to an extent, been opened up, lobby journalists' use of other anonymous sources is a matter of constant debate. So I remember one Sunday morning I read a piece about British politics that had 19 unattributable quotes in the lead story. This is Alan Rusbridger, editor-in-chief of The Guardian for two decades and now editor of Prospect magazine. A senior source, you never have a junior source, a cabinet source, a Whitehall source, a Westminster source, uh, a source sometimes. Mm. Uh, and you think, OK, do all these sources exist? Uh, uh, I'm, as a reader, I'm being asked to take an awful lot on trust. But it's not just the use of anonymous sources. Rusbridger and many others are sometimes concerned about the chumminess between lobby journalists and those who are there to scrutinise. You are completely reliant on SPADs, special advisors, and you WhatsApp them and you wait for them to WhatsApp them back and then they, they will give you a quote or they won't give you a quote and it'll be off the record. And so this sort of sense of, of a group of journalists who are being spoon-fed by the people who have the information, who will never be named, it's not a healthy one. You meet briefly at a party or a drinks event and ask for their number. You send a text, a WhatsApp to follow up. You arrange an initial coffee or maybe a drink and see if you hit it off. Afterwards, you hope they message you first. If it goes well, soon you're WhatsApping all the time. You have lunch, dinner, drinks. You sail off into the sunset. Hang on. No, no, no. It's source cultivation I'm talking about here, not dating. But they are weirdly similar. It's an impossible problem because if you don't have some kind of human relationship with the politicians, you're not going to get them talking frankly to you. No one talks really frankly to a complete stranger or someone they don't trust at all. So there has to be a connection. It's the conundrum of political journalism that we pretend is far easier than it really is. You have to get on with them uh, up to a point to get the story, but then you have to betray them. I think journalists have to be cold-hearted. Um, so you make the relationship, you know, you make the eye contact, you have the relationship, and then when push comes to shove and you have to say something disobliging about them, you make sure that you're not too much of a friend, that you, that you pull back. And that's a hard thing to do. It's, it's the least appetising, the least enjoyable part of being a, a good journalist. But a good, a good journalist has to be a false friend to politicians all the time. Everyone who loves politics loves the human drama way more than they admit. It's sort of reality TV for people who normally consider themselves above that kind of thing. We get kind of attached to these odd characters and their fates. Does Yvette Cooper's new haircut mean she wants to be leader? Will poor old Matt Hancock make it up the greasy pole again and back into Cabinet? Has Michael Gove been to any more nightclubs? Lobby journalists love that side of politics too. We love the personalities, the gossip, the Shakespearean drama. But to be honest, behind the scenes, I know that the thing that worries lobby journalists the most is that sometimes we get a bit distracted. I think sometimes that group feeling of everything being filtered about, you know, is this good for Boris or bad for Boris or good for Keir or bad for Keir, who's in, who's out, sometimes you get better reporting by, by, by standing back from all that. And dangerous suggestion actually going out and talking to people not in Westminster and, and who might be in Sheffield or Cornwall or, or wherever. I think if you're too reliant on the who's up, who's down, 
narrative, which is easy and often compelling, you, you miss something. We're leaving the press gallery now. Down the left, along more cloisters, we pass some familiar political faces having coffee in Portcullis House. We cut out through a back entrance of Parliament, across the great street of Whitehall, and sail past the crowds of tourists gathered outside Downing Street. We flash our passes at the policemen guarding the famous black gates, and we go through security checks. We head up Downing Street itself, enter a tall Georgian townhouse, go up some stairs dotted with security guards, and then we're in a room that you probably recognise from a fairly well-known clip from the TV news. There was a Downing Street Christmas party on Friday night. Do you recognise those reports? <laughs> I went home. <laughs> <laughs> hold on, hold on. Um, uh, Ah. Almost incongruously, lobby briefings are now held in probably the only modern, purpose-built room in the whole of Westminster. The lavish, £2.6 million media suite constructed in Downing Street last year at the behest of Boris Johnson. But his plan to actually televise some of the briefings in his fancy new premises was abandoned at the 11th hour. His fictional party was a business meeting. <laughs> meaning I'm still only allowed to describe verbally what takes place inside. So I've just come from lobby. Uh, the security guard on the way in today said, uh, busy lobby today, uh, lots of questions that need answered because, of course, this week is the week that we are expecting Sue Gray's report into Downing Street parties to finally drop. For context, this was Monday's lobby briefing held 48 hours before Sue Gray's report was finally released. And I think it was probably quite a good example of the lobby system working quite well. You could really see the lobby working as a pack. And, um, you know, from one journalist to another journalist to another, uh, eventually you could see the, the line from number 10 slowly unravel. I think people have this image of the lobby that we're sort of nefariously cooking up you know, versions of events and lines to take with and colluding with Downing Street. It's nonsense. Most of the time we are arguing about dictionary definitions of words. Here's Harry Cole, the political editor of The Sun, outside the Red Lion pub. So we've just come from lobby. And it's Monday, so we're not drinking as well. Diet Coke. Monday one's always good because there's lots of the Sunday papers to digest. Um, often the Prime Minister's official spokesman would have taken the Friday off as well and sent one of his minions. So it's the first time to really get stuck into a broad range of detail and at quite a granular level, as we saw today, with a good 15, 20 minutes of back and forth on the Sue Gray report and um, down to the actual definition of the word instigate, um, which was a new one. To an outside observer, lobby is either a fascinating game of cat and mouse or, frankly, a bit tedious. Journalist after journalist after journalist presses the PM's ever-evasive spokesperson on a key point of fact, trying to pin down something which Downing Street is desperate not to concede. Today's was an absolute classic in that Downing Street were trying to suggest that Sue Gray had instigated a meeting by sending the diary invite uh, to said meeting with the Prime Minister when actually one of the Prime Minister's officials had, in our view, I would suspect, instigated the meeting by saying... Why don't you come to a meeting? After many long minutes of back and forth, we collectively clarified that, in fact, it was a number 10 official who suggested the now infamous secret meeting between Sue Gray and the Prime Minister. I think that lobby works best 
when people go, well, hang on, no, don't change the subject, let's go back to that. Or if someone asks a question and they don't get an answer, the next person just takes that on and runs with it and says, actually, no, X, Y, Z said this, you didn't answer that, can you have another go at it? Another go at it. And that's where the sort of pack works quite well. And actually, it's better to have that sort of almost formal sort of bear pit. If they didn't have those meetings, it would just be individual hacks on the phone having a conversation backwards and forth. It's actually a lot more open and accountable to have those conversations had in front of your rivals as well as, you know, your colleagues. It really bothers people in the lobby that these briefings are sometimes criticised as spoon-feeding. And from seeing my lobby colleagues hold the government's feet to the fire with forensic and kind of brutal questioning, I can really understand the frustration. It's not this idea that we're sitting there, Patsy's taking dictation. We are stress-testing them in a way that that helps them get their message out, fine. I totally think that's something that the government should be able to do. Uh, But also, we are the sort of inbuilt bullshit detector. Harry does his best to keep the hallowed Westminster tradition of the long lunch alive, even if, he admits, it's now more often a boozy dinner. But gone are the days when journalists did their jobs half-cut. The legendary old journalists' bar, where Andrew Marr began our tour of the press gallery, is now full of desks and computers. The bar itself has utterly vanished. It's gone. Sam, the barman, the iconic barman, is no longer here. I'm standing about where Sam would be pouring pints. But everybody got clustered here. Um, just, just over there where there's a, there's a random seat was where I can vividly remember Neil Kinnock and all his mates and all of us singing um, socialist songs late at night. He'd come in here for a, for a, a rousing rendition of Bandiera Rossa and many other things. Um, it was where MPs, journalists, clustered together, got frankly fairly plastered, and uh, many of my friends and colleagues suffered from alcohol in the, in the old days and limped out of the profession or worse. So it wasn't all fun, but it was where everything happened. And that culture had a dark side too, which Jack explored in a previous episode on Westminster's drinking culture. Andrew Marr remembers it all too well. I would very often have lunch with a cabinet minister or a shadow cabinet minister, either with myself or, or a colleague from The Guardian, um, because we had little lunch clubs to make it likely that ministers would come. A couple of whiskies each first, then two or three bottles of wine, and then maybe a whiskey or two chaser before we came back to do an afternoon's work. The afternoon's work would follow, and then we'd be in the bar by 7 or 8 o'clock at night and drink solidly until it closed, until we left here at about 11. So there was a huge amount of drink. There, there were a couple of friends, I won't name them, there were a couple of friends who actually died from drink. Um, one who died in the gutter in Glasgow, his entire life having fallen apart because of the drink. It was an extreme culture. They were, they were great writers, these people, and maybe these days I see less great writing like that. But I think in terms of hard work, graft, being accurate, not being pissed all the time, they're pretty good. But what's it like to be on the other side of the table? What's it like to walk into a room packed with highly experienced, disbelieving journalists and try to valiantly spin the government line? Coming up in part two, I'll speak to the woman who did just that for Theresa May. Stay with us. A message from Equinor. Back to that question. How low can we make carbon emissions go? Our answer is one kilometre below the seabed. At Equinor, we're planning to use carbon capture and storage to help decarbonise the north of England. Carbon emissions from the Humber and Teesside regions will be safely stored one kilometre below the North Sea. See how we're accelerating the UK energy transition at equinor.co.uk. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Imagine chairing a meeting with the most hostile crowd you can think of. Imagine chairing a meeting where your slightest slip becomes front-page news. Imagine chairing a meeting where what you say can move markets, bring down governments, trigger diplomatic incidents. Imagine being the Prime Minister's official spokesperson. I tried not to think about this too much because I think you know, it, it might make you nervous, but you are, to all intents and purposes, for the 45 minutes to an hour that you're in there, the official voice of the whole government... This is Ali Donnelly. You probably have never heard of her. Nobody really outside of Westminster knows who you are. But you have definitely read things that she said. The briefings I did were in this tiny room where, you know, on a busy day, people are sprawled all over the floor and all the chairs are gone. They're sitting on the windowsills and it's really hot and sweaty and (laughs) not very pleasant. As the Prime Minister's deputy official spokesperson from 2017 to the end of 2019... Ali Donnelly, a civil servant, was one of the official voices of Theresa May and then briefly Boris Johnson. The spokesperson's job is, in part, to brief the lobby proactively on shifts in government policy, legislation coming up, what the Prime Minister is up to that day. But more often, it's a purely defensive job, batting away aggressive questions on every topic imaginable. Most often of all, the job is essentially to say nothing at all, to make no news, to just survive. I used to describe the job to my friends as it's it's like going for a job interview kind of every day and the people who are interviewing like really don't want you to get the job. My mornings would start very early, 4.30, my alarm used to go off. I would get up and read all of the papers, check out what's happening across broadcast. There are a series of meetings in the morning, some with the policy teams, some with Prime Minister's kind of very close team, Chief of Staff and so on, and then with the Prime Minister uh, herself for for most of the time I was there. And by nine, you have to have a pretty good sense, you're only two hours out from the briefing then, of where, you know, the top story is going, what the government's position is on that, any sort of tricky policy questions that you might get, you need to get your head around that. But the worst moments, she says, are the quiet news days. That's when the journalists start asking about 
the most random things. Who knows about Brexit? Yeah, quite. Uh, no one's got a f***ing clue. Just like this mad riddle that no one knows what it is, right? So what's happened to that David Cameron? Oh. The question I got was, does, does Theresa May think David Cameron is a bleep? And is Brexit a mad riddle that nobody understands, which is what he had said? And of course, I should have just said no and no to these things and tried to move the story on. The original outburst from Danny Dyer, an EastEnders actor turned commentator, had already gone viral online. Where is he? He's in Europe, in Nice, with his trotters <laughs> up. Yeah? Where is the geezer? But the apparent intervention from Downing Street sent the story into overdrive. And I sort of had a slight moment and I said that, um, you know, people were entitled to their opinions. And as soon as I said that, everybody looked up and started writing. And that's just like the worst moment. So I come out of the briefing and I have to ring the team at the PM to say, look, I'm really sorry about this, but I have I seem to have stumbled into a Danny Dyer story here. The Sun the next day had a headline which said, Defending Danny, Theresa May says Danny Dyer is perfectly entitled to call David Hammond a bleep and refuses to stand up for him. I still don't know if she even knows who he is, but I did see a few months later somebody asked him about Theresa May and he was very complimentary about her. So you might have noticed that Ali Donnelly is actually a woman which is sadly rarer than it should be on both sides of the lobby briefing. I think one of the things I'd really like to see change, though, is, you know, when you sat there as a woman and you looked up at that room, I mean, it was clearly not diverse at all in terms of gender and, and ethnicity in particular. And I did a couple of briefings with all, all men in the room, and I think I did one with all white men in the room. I know that everybody in, in political journalism understands that to be a problem, but... That didn't feel, you know, brilliant, I think, when you're on the other end of it. And also, clearly, it's not representative of, you know, the, the country that journalists are writing about. On the day I went to lobby for the Sue Gray meeting showdown, there were about 30 journalists in the room, and only five of them were women, myself included. Only one person wasn't white. The lobby did a good job that day in pinning down the truth from number 10 about who instigated the meeting between Sue Gray and Boris Johnson, But it does make you think, who are the people holding our government to account, day in, day out? Who gets to be a lobby journalist? And the truth is, they're mostly white, mostly men, and mostly from the same sort of background. And that means certain groups of people are missing out on some of the most privileged, exciting jobs in the country. But it also means we're certainly missing particular stories. I can count on my hands people that aren't white in the lobby. Here's Alita Adieu, political correspondent at the Daily Mirror. She joined the lobby in August. It just felt like an incredible privilege because I knew that there there were hardly any people that looked like me. So I felt like, okay, I'm here to not only ask particular questions that people from underrepresented communities want answered, when going to things like lobby, but also just being like a presence here and just letting people know that, you know, this isn't this old school space anymore. Things are changing, things are adapting, and this is what modern society should look like. But it's been quite a challenge. Even just walking through the corridors of Parliament, for example, not only getting stopped by security guards on occasion because they really wanted to scan my past and make sure that I was exactly the person that I was on my photo, yeah, and I've dyed my hair since. (laughs) So they're just really, like, scanning me, like, you actually a litre of dune? It's like, yes, it's okay. (laughs) 
feel free to look through my bags. Does that not really bother you though? Because I think it won't surprise listeners to hear that I've been in the lobby for mm. a few years longer than you and yeah. I've never been stopped for, to have my pass checked. I mean, it's probably really depressing, but I think it's not out of the ordinary, like within like London being a black person and you know, be, having your identity questioned on a, on a regular basis. I think because I was so nervous and anxious joining, I was really prepared for the worst. Alita is rare in the lobby in that she's not only a young black woman, but she also went to a normal state school. The lobby is still not very diverse in terms of gender or ethnicity, but it's also developed a new diversity problem in recent decades. A survey by the Sutton Trust in 2015 of what it identified as the country's top 100 journalists found 51% were privately educated, compared with just 7% of the wider nation. And journalism's problem is also the lobby's problem. It's basically just quite posh. So when I came in here, there were women lobby correspondents, um, but not that many. Mm-hmm. It was overwhelmingly male But on the other hand, I would say it was overwhelmingly not posh middle class. In other words, I came into journalism at a time when it really wasn't a graduate profession. Most of my colleagues on The Scotsman had left school at 16 or 15 and had come straight into journalism. And so it it was very different. The idea that it was a very well-paid posh job was only just beginning to become apparent. Yeah. So it was a different social mix. Naturally, again, when you know, there are stories to do with race or, or again, cost of living crisis, just, I feel like some angles will just get swallowed in, in the dominant papers just because they'd feel as though no one would really care about it. But if there were more people from a range of backgrounds, we'd actually have a different viewpoint of, of seeing things from. So. I, I care very deeply about that because I am one of those people that didn't go to any of those like institutions and you know didn't have you know I, I did have a difficult childhood but it's just important that we stay on this sort of track of trying our best to improve diversity. There are other downsides to the pack-like mentality of the lobby. The lines between different publications can become a bit blurry when you're all working along the same corridor, covering the same stories, attending the same briefings. One hack recently confessed to me is that the political journalists on rival publications feel to him more like his real colleagues than his grumpy bosses back in HQ. And the ultra-fierce competition between certain newspapers can mean the most important thing for some journalists is that they're seen not to have missed a key line. At certainly at one point there was this idea that... that people coming out of lobby would agree the lines that have been taken between them and that was a bit of an issue. Well that was the lobby and that was the problem. Um, You didn't want to miss the story so if everybody had the same story and you didn't you looked like you'd failed rather than you thought for yourself. I can remember a very strong example of this when I was going over on a plane in the run-up to the Iraq war. We were briefed by Tony Blair's press spokesman at the time that they'd had information that Saddam Hussein now had missiles that had a range of 600 miles or something like that. And it wasn't a hugely important story. But then somebody said, um, but don't we still think that he's got, he's got nuclear weapons there too? And the spokesman said, well, we don't know about that. We just don't know at this stage. Uh, it has been argued, but there's no evidence of that at the moment. But it, it could be possible. 
And the lobby then got together. The journalists, not the politicians, not the spin doctors, the journalists got together and decided that the story was that Saddam could nuke Britain. Because although he couldn't, those missiles couldn't reach Britain, they could reach Cyprus, where there was a British base. And therefore there was a nuclear threat um, from Saddam's missiles to, 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 to Britain, or the British, or the Brits, or the British Army. And paper after paper after paper had the same story splashed across the front page. It was complete tosh from start to finish. But they had agreed the line. And I remember talking to one of the journalists there who said, yeah, it was, it was a bit much. We were going too far. We knew we were going too far. But if everybody else is doing it, you have to do it too. And that is, of course, always the danger. Do shocking things like that still happen along these dusty old corridors? Does the lobby still cook up stories on that kind of scale? From my final interview of this episode, I spoke to our very own Jack Blanchard, the former host of this podcast and now my editor. And yes, since you ask, interviewing your own boss is kind of weird. Jack, welcome to Westminster Insider. Great to have you on the pod. I'm so excited to be on this podcast. Thank you, Alva. <laughs> oh, pleasure. So I've spoken to lots of colleagues, not just sort of recording, but um, everyone has been asking me what the first episode is on. And I say the lobby and then I hear their thoughts on what's wrong with it, what we could be doing better, another funny anecdote. Um, but I really wanted to hear from you um, as someone who's had lots of different jobs in political journalism, um, how much do you think about the imperfections of this system? How aware would you say you are of of them as you're, as you're going about your work? Um, it's impossible not to be constantly aware of it when you're working there, and especially if you're doing one of those very involved like newspaper reporting jobs. I was political editor at The Mirror before I joined Politico, and then you really are in the thick of the lobby day in, day out, running a team, going to the briefings, talking to the other journalists all day. And it's impossible not to be constantly aware of both the upsides and the downsides of the way that system works. It was very apparent to me that... Being part of the lobby was very helpful to me in the sense that there are a lot of very smart people and very driven political obsessives who uh, are all talking about the same things all the time, thinking about the same things all the time. And that, that means there's lots of ideas bouncing around, which can be very helpful just in terms of thinking about which way stories are going and who you should be talking to and, and what the next thing is likely to be. Um, so I found it to be mostly a very positive environment but it was also painfully obvious to me that there were some huge drawbacks particularly the narrowness of the types of people that work there you know there was not a great breadth of life experience there um, I hope my colleagues won't mind me saying too much that, you know a lot of people who are very obsessed with politics and a lot of people who haven't seen a lot of life outside of it um, and that I think is changing and has changed a lot in the 10 years that I've been there, but clearly hasn't changed anywhere near enough yet. Um, and I think that is one of the major drawbacks for me coming from, you know, relatively normal background compared to some of the people there. Like that to me was always painfully apparent. You know, I, I turned up working for a regional paper um, with a normal northern middle class accent and definitely there were some people who'd been there a long time who essentially thought I was straight out of Coronation Street um, when to me I would just you know I was really from a very normal background indeed and, and that can pervade into the 
the way stories are covered and the mindset of some of the reporters that are there. And so we're recording um, really literally like minutes or probably about an hour now after the Sue Gray report finally dropped. That's an example probably of the lobby doing its job, doing it well. Absolutely. And, you know, political journalists take so much stick. You know, people just sort of groan and roll their eyes at us at the best of times. And I can fully understand why. And I do it myself um, from probably on a daily basis. But but here we see like when the lobby can be a brilliant thing. And what we've seen is this story that everyone is rightly so outraged about right now, and which is, you know, got the government absolutely teetering on the brink has come about because of really good investigative journalism by political journalists from right across the board. This is not one sole person's investigation or one sole organisation's investigation. This is a series of very well-connected political journalists across TV and across newspaper and across websites who have together picked and picked and picked away at this using all their different sources and all their different ideas about where the stories might come from and have collectively brought the government to a point where you know they've had to assign one of their most senior civil servants, Sue Gray, to investigate and publish this extraordinary report on what was going on in Downing Street during lockdown. At its best, the lobby collectively achieves so much more than any single reporter ever could working alone. Hunting as a pack, the lobby can collectively pick away at a story, each journalist using their own sources, their own line of questioning, to peel back a little bit more of the truth. But at its worst, this same pack mentality gets things horribly, horribly wrong. The lobby misses the story, or worse, picks and exaggerates the wrong one. In many ways, the lobby system is both British political journalism's greatest strength and its biggest weakness. Winston Churchill once said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others that have been tried. I kind of wonder if the same might apply to our system of reporting on it, too. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, your new host, Alva Ray. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts and maybe consider leaving us a nice review. And why not have a listen back to our past episodes, hosted by Jack, and covering everything from Westminster's drinking culture to the history of political scandals. Thank you to my guests, Andrew Marr, Alan Rusbridger, Ali Donnelly, Harry Cole, Alita Adju, and Jack Blanchard. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions. And here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my editor is Jack Blanchard. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.